The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 111. The Boston University Bridge is the only place in the world where a boat can sail under a train going under a car that is driving under a plane. Only in Boston. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and whether this is your first time listening or you've been with us since the very beginning, I want to say thank you for joining us today and for making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And today, I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to have on a guest that I'm so excited to talk to, not just because I'm a huge sports fan, but because the story you're going to hear today is a truly amazing one and comes from someone who lived at the epicenter of one of the most important historical events of recent times, Alex Awumi, professional basketball player and author of the book, Gaddafi's Point Guard. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show and welcome. Oh, thank you, Travis. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Hopefully we can have a, a really good conversation. Uh, but you know, I'm just excited about being on the podcast today. Yeah. And Alex, I I just can't wait to have you tell your story on this podcast. But I do want to remind listeners, if you have a guest that you'd like to come on the show or a subject you would like us to discuss, please send me an email, trav at extra pack of peanuts, or you can tweet us at pack of peanuts because a listener actually turned me on to Alex's story only about two weeks back. And I was instantly hooked. It's it's been crazy, but in the last two weeks, I've ripped through most of Alex's book. We've exchanged emails, and now I've been able to get him on the show. So guys, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of interesting stories that I don't hear about. So please let me know about them. And Alex, again, thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I also want to mention that I know this story is incredibly personal. I know it can be very difficult to recount and tell. So please just feel free to tell whatever is most comfortable for you. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you. And, and I think a good way to start before getting into the meat of the story, if you could give people a brief overview of, of your background, basically everything up until you became a professional basketball player. Oh, uh, well, you know, I graduated from a small historically black college called Alcorn State University in uh, Mississippi. You know, everybody, you know, always had the, the dreams of playing in the NBA, playing professionally by God's plan. It didn't work out for me. So, I, you know, I took a, a professional contract in France as a rookie. And uh, this is my eighth season now. So I played in France, Egypt, Libya, Macedonia. I played in the U.S. minor leagues. And right now I currently play in England. This is my third season in England for the Wolves the Wolves. So, you know, it's my eighth season, like I said. That's basically my, my sport background. Uh, as far as my personal background, I was born in Lagos, Nigeria. You know, I moved to America at age 11, uh, to Boston, Massachusetts, where my mother's from, right outside of Boston, a small town called Cambridge. You know, I've been been there ever since. You know, I'm just uh, one of seven. I come from a really huge family. You know, back in Nigeria, <laughs> and um, you know, you know that's, that's basically my whole background right there, leading up to the point of me getting to Libya. Yeah, and so 
you, like you mentioned, you know, everyone's dream, let's play in the NBA. But of course, that only happens for a small handful of people. And there's a lot of professional leagues out there that people listening, unless you're big time sports fans, probably don't know about. But professional leagues that people like yourself go and play for and, and do pretty well and get to play basketball and things like that. But it's not always very glamorous. And I think you mentioned in, in the book and kind of in some articles I've read about what brought you to Libya. Can you kind of tell people where you were playing before you went to Libya? Because I think a lot of people would say, well, how did he end up in Libya? Like, why was he there? But the story behind that is a story in itself, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, before I got to Libya, I received a, a professional contract to go play in Macedonia, um, which is you know a small country outside of Greece. Uh, I was living in the main city called Skopje, Macedonia, but I was living in a small Albanian region of Skopje. It's like a small little Muslim area. And, you know, to be honest with you, they didn't really, they weren't used to seeing black people. Only the black people they saw were on TV, rap, you know, YouTube, you know, rappers and stuff like that. So they weren't really familiar with just, you know, the American culture and the African-American culture. And it got pretty bad as far as, you know, when we would go to away games and they would use these profanities and call us, you know, the N-word and things like that. Me and three of my other teammates who were also African-American. And things got pretty violent, you know. They, they didn't really know how to react, you know, to seeing these four tall black guys walking through their city. So they kind of, you know, prejudged us and, you know, things got pretty bad. A lot of racial slurs and stuff like that. And, you know, to be honest with you, it was just time to go. Like, it was just time to go because it, it wasn't a comfortable playing environment. You know, I played, I've been playing this game almost my whole life. And, you know, the one thing that I always learned is was just to have fun playing. When the environment got pretty hostile and got pretty bad, then I made, you know, the choice to leave. Um, my two choices were either go home and then or find another job within a, within a week through my agent. And uh, two days later, after I made a decision to not play for this team anymore in Macedonia, my agent just out of nowhere literally came with me about going to play in Libya, telling me that the team has saw me, you know, they, they know of me, they would love me to come and, you know, take over their point guard position and lead their team. And out of nowhere, you know, I willingly, I just took the contract, you know, to be honest with you, I, you know, I come from Africa, I'm not afraid to go back there, you know, the money for me was good, I get to travel the world, I get to feed my family, so I willingly took the contract, and then, you know, basically, about two or three days later, you know, I was gone, I was on a train from Macedonia to Thessaloniki, which took seven hours, then another train ride from Thessaloniki, Greece to Athens, which took another, like, five or six hours. And I spent basically Christmas Eve and Christmas in Athens, Greece by myself, you know, but knowing I was going to get into a better situation, I was just happy. You know, I got, you know, I got to spend, you know, Christmas on Skype with my family. Um, <laughs> I've done that uh, plenty of times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got to see my nieces open up their presents, uh, you know, you know, just, just things that made me happy. And I knew I was going to get into a better situation. So, like I said, willingly, I took the contract. And you took that contract. So Libya to you was, you know, this was an, an escape from, you know, kind of the horrors, I guess, or, or the bad situation that was happening in Macedonia. And you took the contract without really knowing, you know, what, well, you knew the team or something like that, but you just went to Libya and you said, this is going to be, like you said, a great environment. The pay was good. You got to go back to Africa and you got to see another part of the world. Those are my main reasons why I left. Like I said, I didn't really do research on the country. Obviously, I knew Muammar Gaddafi and, and all the things he did for the African nation, him and Nelson Mandela. So I've known that as a child. But a lot of my friends, 
And, you know, a couple of my family members were kind of hesitant about me going, to be honest with you. You're only going to tell a grown man so much. He can make his own decisions. <laughs> right. But, you know, they had to throw their, their input in there, try to put a little bug in my head to tell me, you know, not to go there. But, you know, being a man, you know, sometimes we're stubborn, you know, and uh, <laughs> I, like I said, I willingly went and just stayed positive, knowing that I was going to be in a better situation. And I still got to play basketball, you know, and I still got to play the game I love. So I was fine with it. And what was it like then when you first got to Libya? You know, you're in Benghazi, the second biggest city, and you're playing for the the team in Benghazi. Talk us through the first couple of days of the first week, because I think you had some realizations then when you got there that it wasn't exactly what you thought or it was just different than you thought. Yeah. Um, you know, when I when I first got to Benghazi, when I landed at the airport, you know, when I got out, they had all these military there with all these, you know, AK-47s and everything looks so serious, like, you know. But I was the only one with a smile on my face, you know. <laughs> we we kind of landed in the desert, and um, you know, I go through customs, and it gets serious for a little while. But after a while, so a man, a soldier, comes and grabs me out of line, and I'm like, "Hell, oh, hold on!" You know, I'm like, "What's going on here?" We had this big old machine gun, and he says, "You, uh, Alex, you play for Al Nassar Benghazi," and I was like, "Oh, okay, I get it, I get it. We get the special treatment." <laughs> he literally just he just takes me downstairs to baggage claim. I get my bags, and once I step outside. I see literally like almost 40 or 50 of our fans out there just, you know, just ready to greet me. My team president comes out of, you know, comes out of the background and, you know, saying, oh, we've been waiting for you, you know, things like that. But um, it was just happy. Like, I, it was just a happy environment. Like, you know, people were giving me gifts. I hadn't played it. I hadn't even scored a point yet. Right. And you had no idea that was going to happen, right? That was totally. No. Yeah. No, I, I didn't know because, you know, obviously it was just, you know, it was just this desert land. You know, I was in the second city, Benghazi, which is there are no fast food chains and no cinemas. It's just literally just desert. And, uh, you know, all these people are happy for me going there. So it kind of made it feel better for me as I got there. I was like, OK, maybe I didn't make the right decision. And I was like, oh, I told those people I know what I was doing. I told my friends I knew I was making the right decision. When I got there, things were smooth sailing. My first week was a little rocky, though first couple of days when I got there. I don't know if I ate some real bad food or I was playing with a with a cat or something, but I had I actually got um some food poisoning. I had, you know, parasites within my blood. I had hookworms within my blood. So the first my first week there, I was literally in the hospital, like in pain. So I didn't really get to touch a ball for a week. But when I did, you know, when I had was taking all this medication and getting rid of all these parasites and, you know, the process. I finally got to practice and got to meet my coaches and my players. But when I got there to practice, it was it was pretty gloomy. Like, it was dark. Like, you know, I walk into this arena. We have military men all around the arena with machine guns watching us practice. I get there and I meet my teammates. And they kind of look like they're not happy to see me. You know, like, you know, when a new player comes to my team, I'm like, okay, this is the guy that's going to come and help us win. You know, some of my teammates had scars on their bodies, banged up. And, um, you know, they were just scared to make mistakes. And, you know, I was kind of, I didn't say anything at first because I was a new guy. Then after a while, I started scratching my head, you know. And, and, you know, I found out through one of my other teammates, Mustafa Niang, that, you know, obviously this team that I was going to, Al Nassar Benghazi, was owned by Muammar Gaddafi and the Gaddafi family. But they weren't supposed to lose. They weren't used to losing. And they had, I think they had lost three straight games. And when you lose, you get thrown up against lockers. You don't get paid. 
you get verbally abused. You know, you know, these, these were grown men that weren't getting paid so they could feed their families, their kids. So they really had no motivation to play the game. You know, it wasn't fun. Right. It was a job. Well, even worse than a job because of the fact that there were repercussions if you if you didn't do well, a physical repercussions even. Yeah, it was physical repercussions if you didn't do well. And this didn't sit well with me because I was, you know, I was kind of in a tough spot. I, you know, I was, you know, I was the highest paid import player coming in. You know, they were paying me all this money. But, you know, my job is not to motivate players to play. You know, this is a professional sport. By the time I come in there, they should be motivated to, you know, to want to win or motivate. I don't know what your motivation is. You get paid or you're doing it for whatever reasons you're doing it. But I kind of felt like I had to take on a role to motivate these guys and get into their lives and know their lives and know what's going on. And, um, you know, I sat down with my team president. I said, this is a hostile working environment. I, I can't work here. I can't play with guys that are scared to make mistakes, to turn the ball over, to miss a shot. You know, things that regularly happen in basketball. After a while, when we eventually started winning, you know, things got better. You saw attitudes changing. Um, obviously, people got paid. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> That's always a plus. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the um, you know the attitude of practice got better. People started laughing, and um, you know in that process, I kind of took a liking to these players. You know, knowing their children, knowing their wives, knowing their families, and we kind of all became just you know brothers and sisters and best friends, literally in a short time period. And this is the first time something like this has ever happened to me where I've I've gotten involved with a player. You know, usually the other countries I I, I played in, it was literally just go to practice. We might hang out go to a restaurant or something, but I've never literally hung out with people's children and just know, you know their backstory. Right. Created a bond that yeah. was much deeper than just teammates. And I think would some of that reason be because you were able to come in, you were able to help them win. So obviously it created a deeper bond because it wasn't just, oh yeah, we're winning. We're all happy. It was more we're winning, which means we're getting paid. I mean, it, it literally flips your life around if you're winning or losing when you have such repercussions if you are losing. Yeah, of course, of course. And, you know, I, like I always say, winning just makes everything better. It makes it right. taste better. Like, you know, it just makes it makes a gloomy, you know, it could, it could make a very rainy day just turn into sunshine, for, you know, for no reason. And, you know, I kind of saw that. So I was happy about what we were becoming as a team. But most importantly, what I was becoming like as a man and I was, I was evolving as a man and these new friends I was make, I was making all over the world. And then I just fell in love with the city and the country in Libya. Beautiful country, beautiful people. You know, it was rare for a, a Christian man. I'm a man of God. You know, you know, I take pride in being a Christian to mix with these Muslims the way I did. You know, the, the people in the Arab region, you know, it was like, you know, we had known each other my whole life. You know, I actually took a liking to these people. And, you know, as time went on, you know, things got, were get, was getting better. And then, then this is when basically the Arab Spring began. It started in Tunisia and then it spread to Egypt and, um, things got bad again because all of our coaches were from Egypt. Well, my coach, Sharif Asmi, he was from Alexandria and the other coaches, the team doctor, they were all from Egypt. So things kind of changed, whereas where the players, some of the players were kind of depressed and angered and, you know, kind of scared for things going on. We got to see coaches get depressed. They weren't able to coach. You know, we were watching their cities in Egypt just turn into literally war zones. Wow. You know, and it's tough to ask a coach to coach 
and motivate a group of people when his city in Alexandria, he doesn't even know if his family's safe. He can't even leave to get into his own city. So, you know, for weeks at a time, we literally had to sit there and watch that. And now we had to uplift the coaches and make it, you know, tell them oh, everything is going to be okay. Your family will be okay. And that was pretty tough. You know, that was pretty tough to see grown men act the way they did. How are you feeling during this in terms of were, were people worried that something might happen in Libya? Was it kind of seen as, okay, well, that's happening there. And we know people, you know, some of our coaches have families there and stuff like this, but Libya you know, has been under Gaddafi's rule for, you know, ever, basically. We're not really worried about what's going to happen. Was there any thought that, that something might happen in Libya, or was it kind of just thought that it was only going to happen in Egypt and, and a few other places, but Libya was kind of a safe haven at that point? Yeah, I, for one, you know, when I saw the military and how and the stronghold that Gaddafi and his regime had on the country, I thought it was a joke that people thought that, the Libyan people couldn't overthrow this man. People were talking about it. a couple of my teammates who um kind of like the older generation that follows when the older generation of Libya who didn't really like Gaddafi always tell me that a day of rage is coming. And I kind of like kind of brushed it off. Like I thought it was like a joke. Like there's no way that you guys are going to overthrow this regime that's been here for 42 years, you know, 42 years. And, uh, you know, a lot of my teammates who I hung out with literally that stayed in what we, what we say in America, the projects or the bad neighborhoods in America, you know, lived in the projects of Benghazi. And, you know, sometimes I would go over their house and they would have like, like these meetings and like they, you know, bringing all this ammunition, like guns and stuff like that. And they were like, you know, the day of risk spreading here to Libya. I thought it was a joke, to be honest with you. When February 14 hit, when a public official was kidnapped in Libya, things got pretty bad. Like it got pretty bad, whereas, you know, but the media started talking about the CNN, Al Jazeera. And then, you know, I talked to my family. My brother was telling me, you got to get out of there. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, don't worry. You know, it's going to die down. You know, these little protests are going to die down. And then, you know, February 17th, you know, a, a sunny Thursday morning on my rooftop is when literally it all hell broke loose. Yeah, because you were, you were in the middle of Benghazi, right? You were in a penthouse, seventh floor. I mean, just in the middle of the city completely. Yeah, yeah. I was basically, uh, you know, you know, you look at a bullseye, I was that dot in the middle. Okay. You know, everything was going on around me. So either way, I was trying to get out would have been dangerous, you know. And I mean literally dangerous when you, you know, on a Thursday morning when you go up to your rooftop and try to see the people who are protesting and you see the military on the other side. You know, in America, you know, they're all about breaking up groups like that you know they'll they'll get on a little a loudspeaker and tell you to disperse and things like that but you know this wasn't the case you know these military vehicles were actually driving toward the protesters i mean the protesters had no weapons you know just basically they were just their voices were their weapons at the time i just witnessed a, a military a jeep and a convoy just literally shoot into a crowd of hundreds of people like literally just just murder people right in front of my own eyes it's crazy because two months ago, or maybe even five or six months ago, I was at home in America. I was living a good, I was living a good life, you know. I was with my family. I was eating good, sleeping good, just enjoying life. And then those five or six months literally flashed before my eyes and got to that point. Everything like kind of slowed down in slow motion. And basically what was going through my head was like, is this a dream? 
Like, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I'm seeing people literally just die in front of my own eyes, like just fall, like just like dominoes right in front of me. I fell down on my rooftop and I had I said to myself, like, this has to be a dream. But the the noise from this big old machine gun and the, the noise of the shells just hitting the floor blocked out all of my thoughts and I really couldn't think at that point and I mean literally I, my heart was beating so fast I felt like my heart was about to jump out of my chest and I couldn't breathe I had literally had like a panic attack like just like that so, you know something I never even had to ever deal with and like I said just like that at the drop of a dime things just changed I saw a beautiful city trying to do a war zone in a two-month period and you know that's when things really really got bad for me. yeah and you're in the apartment and you see this happening and and it becomes real and now all of a sudden you know there is the uprising what then happens for you because you're in an apartment and like you said you're in the you're in the middle of the bullseye so i'm assuming you couldn't you couldn't just get out at that point no, no. I mean, you know, my first instinct was I'm going to stay here till it all dies down. And I literally thought, okay, maybe two or three days, you know, kind of thinking about it. Okay, the military has a stronghold. Everybody has seen this. Nobody's going to try to do anything crazy. You know, those, those two or three days turned into 16 days for me. I was a prisoner in this beautiful apartment with these you know, this million-dollar apartment that was owned by, you know, Muntasim Gaddafi, Gaddafi's son. I mean, couches with gold trimmings, flash screens everywhere, fine china. I was a slave in this this flat. You know, like I said, you know, I thought it would be two or three days and, and then it turned into 16 days. But within that 16 days, you know, what a lot of people need to know was I wasn't sitting there watching TV, kicking my feet up, blocking out the noise of, of the gunshots with, in the, with the remote control. I had no food. The little food I did have, I gave to my neighbors who, you know, it was a group of women. And, you know, me thinking, oh, it's going to be over in two or three days. I could, you know, restock up a food, you know, and things like that. But no food, no water. I was cut off from the world. You know, they was basically a shut off switch. They, they shut off all internet. They shut off all electricity. Plumbing was shut out. And I was literally forced to be there without no contact from my mother, my father, you know, none of, none of my friends. As days went by, you know, things got hard. You know, there was, you know, I had no food. The things that I had to do to get what I, at the time, called nutrition into my body were things that a lot of people wouldn't even try to do. You know, you know, for instance, I, I had no water, so I was drinking out of the toilet. I was drinking out of the toilet little by little. And using the bath, using a bathtub as my as my toilet while I was taking little drips of water and trying to save this. But at the time I was there, I had, I had no food. You know, I, my body transformed. You know, when you're used to just a certain type of nutrition, eating a certain way, to literally boom, seven days. You you know, your body talks to you and say, "Hey, what are we doing now? We we need something." And I didn't have the, you know, the, the food that I used to. So I, I had to resort to eating insects and worms and stuff like that. You know, stuff that I can look back at it now and say, I'm happy I did it. But, you know, these are things that people will never, ever even think about doing. And this is what I had, had to resort to. 
And again, I say to myself, five or six months prior, I was, I was, you know, for me, eating good is, you know, I go to Longhorn Steakhouse and get a good steak, you know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. But I didn't have this, you know, I didn't have all these luxuries. And then it got to a point where I was kind of questioning myself as a human being. Did I love the game so much that it has brought me to one of the, probably the greatest uprisings the, probably the world has almost ever seen, you know? And I started to question myself. And the more I questioned myself, I got depressed. You did all this for a check. You basically sacrificed your life for this, you know, this round piece of leather, things like that. And then I started going crazy, losing my mind, I, you know, talking to myself. Every time I, I heard a gunshot outside, I jumped. You know, it was kind of like I had shell shock. You know, it got to a point where my body was hurting so bad, but my mind was so twisted about things I was seeing and old memories I had of myself that I had to forgive God for letting myself almost commit suicide. You know, it, it, it got to a point where I knew that I would never get out of there. Like, you know, it was, it was no hope for me. I was dead to the world. You know, my family probably, you know, at the time they thought I was gone. You know, when they told me they thought I, they thought I was gone. And, you know, me being a Christian man, I lost all faith in God. But, but one day, I, you know, I decided that I wouldn't let myself and my mind go through this pain anymore. And I was literally 100% positive that I wanted to take my own life. And I forgive God for bringing me to this place, you know, for having this plan for me at the end of the day. I was happy with that. I'm not ashamed to say, but I was happy that I had lived, you know, 26 years on this earth. I got to cry. I got to laugh. I had great siblings. I had great parents who literally raised a great man. And at that time, 26 was enough for me. I had did everything I wanted to do, you know. And, you know, now I talk about it. It hurts me to talk about it. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting here crying right now, but, <laughs> but, um, it's just happy that I'm here and I could tell the world, you know, my feelings and they could feel my emotions coming out of me because that's pretty, that's pretty tough for somebody to sit here, especially a young man. You know, 26, I was a baby. You know, I was, a, I was a child, but I had lived, I had loved and I had people that loved me. So for me to say that was enough for me right now hurts me, but at the time, if people knew what I was feeling on the inside and know the things that I was seeing, you know, hopefully they will understand. And it was a tough decision I would, you know, I had to make, you know, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of happy I didn't go through with it. But, uh, <laughs> hey, well, the hardest part too, as you mentioned, you have all these physical things, you're eating bugs, you're, you're drinking out of the toilet, but you don't have any idea when it's going to end. There's no idea like, hey, well, someone called me and in 50, I only have to make it 15 days and then I'm okay. It's this idea that I don't have any clue what's happening and there's no way, there's no way out. And I, I can't even imagine what it was like. I mean, hearing you tell it, I, you know, I can, I can feel your emotion. I can feel for you, but, uh, you know, saying I would know what it's like would, wouldn't do it any justice. When you got to that point, you didn't know what was going to happen. You know, you said, "Okay, I'm I'm debating this. I I feel okay with my decision. I'm I'm trapped here. I'm going to do this." What then changed? How were you able to not make that decision of committing suicide and saying, "Like I'm going to continue going"? Was was there an external factor? Was it internal? I mean, it was it was more internal, to be honest with you, because within the process, you know, I talked about me kind of losing my mind, seeing things. When I finally kind of made that decision and told God that I literally forgive him for bringing me here, he did something for me that 
it's something you can't even you can't even imagine or see in a movie. I literally was seeing myself at early stages of my life, three years old, ten years old, fifteen years old, and I I noticed that the younger me, like when I was growing up in Nigeria, was just extremely happy. It's just extremely happy up to high school. As I saw the older version, like 20, 23, 25, we was just like kind of depressed. And the younger version of me, I was literally having conversations with myself. And the younger version of Alex is literally asking me, how can we get back to us? And that's being happy. How can we get back to that? You know, you have to get back to this. And I kind of took it as a challenge on myself. And I looked at myself and I was like, wow, like, I can't be- really believe this is happening. So, you know, in my 20s, I've been depressed this whole time. It wasn't really basketball or money that made me, you know, feel this way. Depression or me coming in here or going to all these different countries, being away from my family. It was just me doing the things that made me happy. That would get me back to that point. So. You know, when I started having, seeing these things and, you know, talking to myself and having these conversations with myself, that's when I kind of looked at myself and I was like, what am I doing? I kind of figured out that God had put me here for this reason. Like I was put on earth for this reason. And it wasn't like, oh, God made this plan. He put me through these roadblocks. I, I worked hard playing basketball. And now I'm to this point. I figured out that if there was anybody in the world that he could have picked, he picked me. Like I was chosen, you know, like I was chosen to be in that apartment to challenge God at that time, at that point. And that's, when I looked at it that way, my whole life changed. Like, you know, it was like I had like this, this boost of energy and I was just willing to do anything, to do anything to get out of there, to see my family, you know, so that, that, that was kind of the turning point for when I was like, okay, you know, maybe I need to look at this in a different, you know, type of way. So that, that basically is it. Guys, I know this is a little bit of a heavier podcast than we're used to doing here at the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast, but I really thank Alex for coming on and sharing the first part of his story. I think his story is amazing. It is a testament to human willpower. It is a testament to just perseverance and strength and how he was able to dig deep. And if you want to hear part two of his story, you can get that in our second part of the interview, which you can find on iTunes. Of course, you can find that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods. And in part two, we're going to talk about how Alex was able to escape all the trials and obstacles he went through even after he was able to get out of the apartment and the things that he ran into. And of course, the struggles he had when he actually got home to the United States and the things that he's been able to do to cope with some of the things that he's dealing with and to really start life anew after this harrowing experience. So if you want to hear that, you can hear all that in part two of our interview with Alex, which again, you can find on iTunes, on Stitcher, however you listen to the podcast. It's also linked up at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods. 
I want to remind you as well, we are running a survey at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash survey. We want to make this show as best as it possibly can be for you. So a quick less than five minute survey, your feedback would be invaluable to us. We're also giving away a $50 Amazon gift card to one lucky winner. So if you have some time, head on over extrapackofpeanuts.com slash survey, fill that out. And again, we really appreciate that. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Thank you for the ongoing support of the podcast, for making us a top 100 podcast on iTunes. And until tomorrow, happy free travels.